Well, good morning. Welcome to all of you joining us on site and online here today as well. Well, if you're with us last week, you know we started a new series as we're walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this is a letter that Paul wrote to this great church as he was journeying through on his second missionary journey through the region of what we would call Greece today. And Paul planted this church in Thessalonica. And after he planted this church, it came under some rather severe persecution. We talked about that a bit last week. And such severe persecution that he had to flee to a different city. And in the course of doing so, he lost touch with this church, and he was worried about how they were doing. All he could do was pray for them and and, and hope that things were going well. But then he received word from his protege, Timothy, who brought him this report that not only were things going well, but they were thriving in the midst of all the things that they were experiencing in that city. And this letter is essentially Paul's opportunity to reconnect with them to let them know that I've been praying for you and that I want to continue to encourage you, that I'm so thankful that things are going so well in Thessalonica. I'm so, I'm so thankful that you heard the good news, that you, that you received it, that you, that you formed this church. And I want you all to know, he says in this letter, I, I want you all to know that, that throughout the known world, you guys are known for your faith, for your hope, and for your love of Jesus Christ. I have to imagine that kind of encouraged. Wouldn't you imagine if somebody had said that about us? Wouldn't that be encouraging to you? Is that throughout, throughout the region, you are known for your faith, for your hope, and for your love in Jesus Christ. I have to imagine that encouraged them. But they, they felt pretty good about that because that's what they were known for. Now, isn't it true that all of us want to be known for something? You know, whether it's you as a person or a family or, or if you own or are part of a company, if you're, if you're part of a team, you maybe you want to know, be known as a person of integrity. You, you are part of a team that you want to be known as a team that wins. If you're part of a business, you perhaps want to be known as a business that offers good service and good products and good value. These, these are things that people want to be known for. It's common for, for people, organizations, and businesses to want to be known for things. I came across a story this week of a school in Cambridge, England, who wanted to be known for something. They, the, the headmaster of this school wanted his students and wanted his school to be known for producing people, producing graduates that were quick thinkers and had good communication skills. Quick thinkers and good communication skills. It sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? A good thing to be known for. And so he instituted a policy to help shape this. And the policy he instituted was if any of the students got into trouble, if they, if they had any infractions that they were going to be punished for, if they were able to creatively and articulately and conceivingly lie, they would be let free. A policy of lying he instituted so that they would be quick thinkers and have good communication skills. Now, as you process that, perhaps as parents, you're thinking, ah, I'm not sure I want to be known to have a student that goes to that school. Well, there were two reactions that came from this. There were some parents who said, no, we do not want to be known. We do not want to associate with this school and with this policy. We and our kids do not want, by extension, to be known as liars. They pulled their kids out. But there are other parents who says, you know what? they're going to be able to develop the charm and the eloquence that's required for the next generation of entrepreneurs and wealth creators. And they encouraged the policy. And they continued forward with it. Now, 
we're all going to find ourselves on one side or the other of that situation because we all want to be known or not known for certain things. And quite often, what we are known for emerges from either our character and our conduct. Are usually where the, what we're known for emerges from. And some people will love us for what we're known for. Other people, not so much, and will be opposition to what we're known for. Paul, and by extension, this church in Thessalonica, they were known throughout the known world for their faith and for their love and for their hope in Jesus Christ. And some people hated them for it. Some people hated what they stood for and how they lived their lives, and that's why they came under persecution. But so many people were blessed by it. They were inspired by it. They were saved by what they showed and lived out in the world because of what they stood for, because they stood for the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Paul today, in the passage we're going to look at in chapter 2, he continues to explain this, this idea, this idea that the quality of a character, the idea of the equality of our character and our conduct cannot be based on outcomes alone. Because as we've already seen this morning, the outcomes of our character conduct could be good or they could be bad. And so we can't gauge ourselves strictly based upon other people's responses to it. But no, he says the quality of your character, the quality of your conduct, what you are known for in this world, because we all want to be known by something, what you are known for by this world is not solely by the outcomes, but it is by the degree to which you honor the one you seek to represent. He says it is by the degree to which you honor God. The Thessalonians had faith that informed their character, and their character drove their conduct, and all of that was founded in Jesus Christ. And so, as we dive into chapter 2 today, to look a little bit closer at this principle, I want to invite you, if you want to follow along, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you want to use the pew portal, the sermon notes are there, or you can use a pew Bible, found on page 956. And as you flip there, I just want you to remind you, let you know that Paul here in this passage is going to hold himself up as an example, as an example to follow, as he encourages all followers of Jesus Christ, to those of whom he was writing in Thessalonica, as well as those in the church today. He holds himself up as an example to be followed so that we would honor God by living out his character and his conduct as the family of God. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll see that right away Paul points out to us that he himself is not immune to some of these challenges. Because he begins by comparing two very different encounters that he himself has had on this missionary journey. And he says this in verse 1 and 2. He says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you there in Thessalonica, our, our visit to you is not without results. Things had gone well. Things had gone extremely well. Even though there was persecution, the faith had taken root in Thessalonica. You know it was not without result. But in verse 2, however, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with God's help, we dared to tell you the gospel in the face of this strong opposition. It's kind of the tale of two cities here. Even though things had, had not gone well in Philippi, they pressed on. When they came to Thessalonica, they still preached boldly and, and good things happened. But the events that he's referring to here in, in, in uh, Philippi, we can actually read in more detail in Acts chapter 16. If you want to read that later, if you want to look more into it later, find Acts chapter 16, what he's referring to here. But just to give you a quick idea, the city of Philippi, which is about 160 kilometers east of Thessalonica, 
is the first, one of the first places that Paul went to on this journey. And when he got to the city, as he would typically do, he would go find a place where he could preach the good news. And the first place that he came upon in this city of Philippi was a river where some women were gathered. And he, and he preached to them. And one lady, one lady in particular by the name of Lydia, which is a fantastic name, by the way. Those of you who don't know, it's my granddaughter's name. So, <laughs> this, this lady named Lydia hears, believes, and accepts the good news of Jesus Christ. And she, she's transformed in that moment. And she opens her home as a place of hospitality for Paul, Silas, and Timothy to use as sort of a home base while they're ministering in Philippi. And now, while they're living with Lydia, every day Paul and Silas would go out to pray, and on their way to this place that they would pray, every single day, on their way to this place that they would pray, this, this woman who was a slave and had an evil spirit with the ability that gave her the ability to predict future, to be a fortune teller, this, this lady would follow them. Every day, shouting, these guys are the servant of the Most High God. They will tell you how to be saved. Not a bad fanfare to be walking through the city. But day after day after day, she would follow them and she would yell this until finally Paul had had enough. He stops one day and he casts the spirit out of her. Now, she's a slave, remember, and so her owners are furious by this because they're making bank. Like, like, like she was generating tons of money for them through this gifting that she had. And they're angry enough that they arrange for Paul and Silas to be seized and taken to the Roman officials, and they're accused of, of kind of stirring up the city and bringing in false, inappropriate customs, and these guys need to be stopped and punished. The Roman officials agree. They have them stripped. They have them flogged. They have them thrown in prison and put in chains. Well, it's not how they expected their day to end, but they will not be deterred because even in chains, in jail, after being stripped and flogged, that night they are praying and they are singing and they are preaching to the entire prison. And in the middle of the night, an earthquake hits. And the earthquake caused all of the doors to swing open and the chains to fall off the prisoners. And the prison guard who was there trying to keep control of all this kind of wakes up of his, of his middle-of-the-night stupor. And he sees the doors open and the chains gone. He thinks, all of my prisoners have fled. When my boss finds out, I'm done for. So he thinks, I'll take my own life in advance of that. But, but before he can, Paul says, stop, we're, we're still here. And the prison guard comes to them, and all that he had heard and all that he had seen that night leads him to the point where he falls before Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, you must believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And he does. And he takes Paul and Silas home, and, and Paul and Silas preach to his entire household that night. And that night, they all come to faith and are baptized. And this whole home in Philippi, which would form part of the new church there, came to faith. Now that morning, the Roman officials learn a little more about what had happened the day before. They, they learn that Paul and Silas are actually Roman citizens, which is a problem for how they were treated. But they also learn that maybe things were exaggerated a bit on how they actually were stirring up trouble. I thought, you know, we're just going to release these guys and ask them to quietly leave the city and, and just, just be on their way. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just kind of brush this under the rug and, and be done with it. And so they come to Paul and say, hey, good news, you're, you're free to go. And Paul says this at the end of chapter 16. He goes, uh, no, we're actually not. We're not going to leave. I want those guys to come down here and apologize to me. 
I then want them to publicly escort us from the prison through the streets of the city out of town. I want that public escort to take away. Now, why, why do you think Paul did that? If you had gone through all that he went through, the flogging and the, and the ridicule and the imprisonment, and they're, say you're free, you're like, I'm out of here. And he's like, no. No, I demand an apology. I demand a public escort out of town. Why, why would he do that? Was it because his feelings were hurt? I guarantee you they were, but that's not why he would do this. Why would he do this? Well, let me tell you another story. From when I was younger, I was a teenager, I worked at a gas station for about two years. And, and it was back in the days when you could fill your truck for about 30 bucks. And, and there was no, no credit card, like you had credit cards, like machine, remember those machines? You slide them back and forth, but there's no debit and stuff. So a lot of cash would go back and forth. And, and the guy came in and filled his truck for 30 bucks, and I was working cash that day. And he gave me two 20s, and I gave him back 10. And I was about to close the till, and he stopped, and he accused me of stealing $10 from him. He thought he'd give me a 50 when he'd give me 40. And I said, no, no, he gave me two 20s. And he swore that he gave me a 50 and I was pocketing $10. And right there in front of all the customers, in front of, in front of all the other staff, he's yelling at me, accusing me of stealing his change. And he demands to see the owner. Now, the owner of this gas station is a guy named Jack. And Jack was, and maybe you've met guys like this, he was an old, quiet, hardworking mechanic come in, do my work, things go smooth, I go home. And, and he was a quiet guy, a man of few words. But when he came out to talk to this customer, it was the one and only time I have ever heard Jack raise his voice. And he set this guy straight. He wasn't even in the room when it took place. He didn't know for sure what had happened, but he knew from the time of working with me, he knew my character. And he knew the reputation that his shop had in the community, and this was a threat to both. And so he made this customer apologize to me in front of the staff, in front of the customers, apologize to me, and acknowledge that he had been an heir, and then leave. Why did he do that? Why did Jack do that? Because this man had publicly called my character into question. This man had publicly called my conduct into question, and by extension had questioned the integrity of the shop, and by extension, the integrity of the owner. See, Jack took this personally, because he accused one of my employees, he accused my business, he included my business, you include me in this situation. See, Paul's not worried about his feelings here. He's worried about the reputa reputation of his ministry and the God that he represents. And if he was publicly accused and beaten and accused of these things before people, he needs to be publicly cleared of all these things, not for himself, but for the sake of who he represents. And no, that is the same reason he cast that evil spirit out of that woman. It wasn't because she was speaking falsehoods. Why would he do that? She was speaking the truth. These are, the, these are men of God who can tell you how to be saved. Seems like a pretty good message for somebody to share as you're walking to pray and trying to build a church. But he cast the spirit out of her because even though she was speaking truth, he did not want to be associated with evil. Because he would be known by that if that was the case. See, Paul experienced poor treatment in Philippi. And he was made to look like a man of poor character and, and poor conduct. And, and therefore, his ministry was made to look like a failure. The church that he had planted in Philippi was under suspicion because of those things. 
And therefore, the God that he represented was viewed as powerless and pointless. But, verse 2, Thessalonica was different, wasn't it? And they were the evidence that validated Paul's ministry and the truth of God. As we continue reading through there in verse 3, Paul says, You know, I have been accused of preaching in error and of unpure motives. I've been accused of these things. The phrase used here, if we were to kind of move it back to the Greek, the phrase used here is similar to the idea of somebody using a fishing lure. Something that you would use to entice a person to come from a place of safety, to, to come towards something that is dangerous for them. And, and this was a phrase, this was something that was commonly used to refer to some of the con artists who would come through town and who would, who would try to deceive people for personal profit. And, and Paul says, I've been accused of these things. People have come to me and said, you're making awfully big promises with, with outlandish claims. You must be up to something. But in verse 4, he responds by saying, no, rather, rather than that, we simply have spoken as those who are approved by God and who have been entrusted with the word of God, with the gospel, with the good news. You see, the only, the only personal gain that Paul ever laid claim to is Jesus Christ in his life. And that was the basis of the message that he proclaimed. That Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day raised to new life. That he would offer forgiveness to all people who would come to him by faith and experience new life in him. That is simply the message Paul was proclaiming. And it is a timeless message that we continue to proclaim here in this place, in this church. And Paul is basically saying to them, I didn't want anything from you. I wasn't after anything because you have nothing you can offer me. As he would say to the church in Philippi later on, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. That was the view Paul operated from. You can accuse me of false motives. You can accuse me of seeking things, but the only thing I seek I already have, and it is Jesus Christ, and I seek to know more of him. Everything else I count as a loss. There's nothing more Paul is seeking. And in verse 5 he continues, and he says, there are others who will say things like, well, you're using flattery. You're simply saying these nice, fancy things because you're actually masking your true greedy intentions, Paul. I'm not known for that, Paul says. I, you know, there are times, there, there are times, you may not know this, but there are times when people in our community are suspicious of our church. Did you know that? I, I, I talk to people and I get emails sometimes. Not, 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 not daily, I don't want to paint in that sort of picture, but there are times on a regular basis people are suspicious. They, they ask questions. And it's not because we did something wrong. It's actually because I think we're doing something right. You see, the questions people ask are along the line of, they won't use these words, but kind of the underlying theme is, is who welcomes people like that? And why would you do that? Who, who serves and, and loves their community and charges nothing? Why, why would you do that? What do you want? What, what's, what's the next step that you're going to spring on me? But folks, we, we, we give freely, whether it's for the day camps that happen and, and for the food bank and second stories and the benevolent, so many things that we offer to the community for free, things we offer to you with, with, with classes and, and opportunities to serve and give and fellowship together. We, we give freely. We, we give of all that we are and all that we have. 
We give our resources and our, our building and our energy and our time and our, and our friendship. We, we give of the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and some people have never experienced that type of love and care for another person. And so they just don't have a category for it. And the only way that they can process and make sense of it is go, you must have an ulterior motive. There must be something else behind it. There must be something that it leads to. And it creates suspicion. It creates suspicion for Paul and for these churches. And even up in today's world, it just creates suspicion sometimes. But Paul responds to this in verse 5. He says, hand to God. God is my witness. It's all true. It's all genuine. And you know why? You know the purpose? Do you know the reason behind it all? It's not that we're looking to please people. It's not because we want to receive anything from anyone. It is simply because we are trying to please God alone is the answer he gives. And really it underlies so much of what we strive to do here as well is not to please people but to honor God alone. You know, some of these accusations that Paul was facing were really not due to himself, but things that are beyond his control. You see, throughout Paul's world, and we see this in our world still too sometimes, there are many people who will arrive on the scene and profess all sorts of things, aren't they? Just say all types of things. Sometimes these are referred to, especially back in Paul's time, but even in today's world, sometimes these people are referred to as charlatans. Um, which, which speaks to, you know, some of these people do this just from a point of, of, of ignorance and, and not bad motive, just bad idea and bad theology. But sometimes there are people who have bad motives, these charlatans, who, who use trickery to deceive for personal profit. I think some of these charlatans may have come, may have graduated from that school in Cambridge where they're just taught to lie. Like, that's, that's what they were taught, right? <laughs> but here's the problem with them. Is not only do they lead many people astray, but they also give legitimate churches and legitimate missionaries and pastors a bad name. And this is who Paul's being lumped in with by the fact of what his job basically is. He's being lumped in with these charlatans and accused of these things, as well as the gospel of Jesus Christ that he proclaims. And so Paul reminds him of this. He says this in verse 6 and in verse 7. He says this to them. He says, we were not looking for praise from anyone. We're not looking for praise from you folks, not from anyone at all. Even though as apostles, see, apostles did have some rights and authorities. He says, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. There are certain types of prophet and authority that was appropriate. They, you know, in, in a healthy environment, it wasn't wrong for, for the, the leaders of churches, for, for genuine apostles of Christ to, to look for certain authority, certain things like, like to be cared for so that while they preached, their needs were cared for. It was also not uncommon and it was appropriate for, for people in this role to, to say, no, I, I do have authority. I've been entrusted with the word of God and there is a level of authority that comes with that. And people should listen to, to me, as Paul's kind of saying. And then the third thing that people would look for sometimes would be, would be um, kind, of, kind of honor and respect. But Paul says, I, I could have. But I knew it was unwise in this particular context and situation. So, so we didn't look for any of that. Even though it was possible to Christ, we could have asserted our authority and asked for these things appropriately, but we didn't. Instead, instead we were like young children among you. We're like young children. Rather than a place of, of authority, they chose a place of humility. Right? Rather than a, a position of profit, they, they chose to take the position of a child who makes no claim to wealth, 
who makes no claim to any authority, who, who makes no claim to any sort of recognition, simply rather adopts a position of submission, of gentleness, and of service to the family of God. Now, for the church in Thessalonica and for the church of Jesus Christ today, this is a good reminder to us. A reminder that character matters, doesn't it? Character matters. Not because it validates us. And not because it validates our faith or our experience. But character matters because it brings honor to God. And it brings honor to his message of new life available through him. And Paul kind of is explaining this as he transitions into these family metaphors a little bit. As he talks about being a young child amongst them. And in the next section, as we look at here, he actually continues to use these family metaphors now as he moves from, from talking about character to now talking about conduct that flows from that character. And, and I'll, just, I'll read the section here from verse 7 through verse 12, and then we'll, we'll circle back a little bit. He says this, starting in verse 7. He says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of Jesus Christ, but, but our very lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We, we work day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so was God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging them and comforting them and, and urging them to live lives worthy of God, to live lives worthy of the one who calls them into his kingdom and into his glory. Use these family metaphors. The first one we see there is he, he talks about how he had this mothering kind of role amongst them. Speaking about how he, how he cared for them. He cared for these new believers like, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a mother nursing her infant. Paul fed these newborn Christians the, the spiritual food of the gospel and allowed them to grow and to develop spiritually in their lives. Paul's saying here, I'm not like some, some wet nurse that you just kind of call in to perform a duty and then I'm on my way. He says, no, I, I was like a mom to you. I shared my whole life with you. This, there, there's this deep commitment, this, this self-sacrificing nature of the relationship they experience with Paul. And, and Isn't that how it was for our moms? Isn't that why we love our moms? Is because they, they don't just you know, kind of show up and do certain things for us. They, they invest their whole selves into our lives, don't they? They, they invest their whole selves they, physically and emotionally, and it's a 24-7 job for, for the job that you moms do for us. And we love you so much for it. And, and nobody, can, nobody can possibly measure the faithful love of a mother for their child. And this is kind of the metaphor that Paul is using here as he expresses his care and deep devotion and nurturing for this church. But then he also talks about this fatherly role that he had where he, where he equipped and encouraged and kind of ur urged a little bit those, those Thessalonians to, to live the life they've been called to, to walk the walk that is worthy of God. And, and Dad, I, Dad, I'm sure you can relate to me in this one where you know what it is to feel that desire, don't you? You know what it is to feel that burden of responsibility to see your kids succeed? There's just this, it seems like there's this, this God-given weight that God places on our shoulders to say, you have a role to, to encourage them and, and to urge them and to, and to move them towards what they've been called to in success in this life. And 
I know I feel that with, with my kids, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll express some frustration with that to, to Nadine, and, and she'll be like, just, just love them, they'll, they'll figure it out, like that, that motherly response, right, that, that nurturing, that caring, that investing, that just, just love them, they'll figure it out, and, and yes, it's true, that's true, it's part of it, there's, there's no room for being harsh, there's no room for being controlling, but this, this God-given burden doesn't allow us just to sit back passively, there, there's an, an action, an active part to it. It's like God has placed this responsibility upon us, and God had placed this responsibility upon the shoulders of Paul. And, and, and I, I, speaking personally, I feel this responsibility for, for the church here at West Meadows to, to be in a role of, of shaping and, and, and coaching and encouraging and, and spurring forward to the things that God has called us to. There's this fatherly role, this motherly position, there's this, this fatherly expression of it. And the, and, the, and the Thessalonians had seen this incredible character and conduct in Paul. As, as he had invested in them. And so Paul is like urging them, go live that. Not, not, not because of me, because of the one that you see in me. Go, go live that. Reflect that in the world around you. Reflect the one that you have committed to. That the world may see him in you. But then finally in this passage, he also talks about, about being a brother and a sister among them. There, there's the motherly role, the fatherly role, and now the this, this sibling role. He he talks about how he toiled and he suffered and, and kind of worked side by side with the Thessalonians. You know, as we read in a minute here, just a little bit lower down in verse 14, he talks about how, how these same things existed in other churches. And because they had these similar struggles and these similar bonds that actually united them with, with all of the churches who professed Jesus Christ. All churches, all believers who were brought into this family of God and had kind of had this, had this kind of this fraternity of believers who are united in their mutual struggle, but also in their mutual support and their mutual belief and faith in Jesus Christ. You know, this, this past week, uh, Athena and I had an online meeting, a video conference with two pastors from Cuba. This church uh, that we were talking to, uh, Iglesias Batista El Jordan. Beautiful people, absolutely beautiful, beautiful pastors. And, and Pastor Mikel kept referring to us as a fraternity. And it was this curious word that he would use. I've, I've never actually used it. I, I, I know it and understand it, but I've never actually used it in this context before. But, but it struck me as so powerful because he, he's in Cuba and we're in Edmonton. And, and like, like, not only are we separated by countries, but, but his context in Cuba the living conditions, the situation, you know, politically, economically, all those things is so different than what we have. The context in which his church exists and they minister is so different from what we have. The, the needs of his community are so different from ours. There, we could not list enough differences between us. And yet he is speaking of this fraternity that exists between us because we are brothers and sisters in the thing that matters most. We are brothers and sisters as we work to serve and honor Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that a beautiful thing? Talk about this as this fraternity that, that transcends culture and country and need and, and challenges and conflict. It transcends that to be this fraternity of the one thing that matters most, the good news of Jesus Christ and the mission we're called to serve. See, the main point of this section here is that in the family of God, we need fathers who lead. We, we, we need mothers who nurture. But in Jesus Christ, we are all called to love and we are all called to serve one another as brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. 
Paul describes his own character and conduct to the Thessalonians, and, and, and in course of doing so, as we've seen today, he actually implicitly calls them and calls us to follow that. He does. It, it's, it's kind of implied here that he wants us to follow in the footsteps. As he follows in the footsteps of Christ, he wants us to follow him as well. But here's the interesting thing about it. As we go through this passage, what I've shared with you today, did you notice that, that nowhere did, did he or did I give us a list of prescribed behaviors? Because we can't reduce this down to a checklist of this is the things that good Christian boys and girls do. That, that, that's not what he's talking about here. There's no prescribed checklist. He, he never hints in this passage that our character and our conduct have anything to do with our ability to earn God's love. It doesn't come up. Rather, he presents this all as a response to the God who loves us and calls us into his family. See, what he actually is speaking about here is about an attitude. He, he's speaking here about a heart condition. A heart that has been so transformed by Jesus Christ that it acts and lives and serves for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that's a call to everybody who professes Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's a call to each person who does that, to, to examine how do we relate and how do we live as the family of God. And when we go into the world, how do we serve others in the name of that family which we represent? How are we known? What are we known for as we commune together here as a worshiping community and as we go out there and serve in the surrounding community? But folks, remember, we do not do this because we're seeking the approval of people. We do this because we want to live a life that is honoring to God. And there is such a great need for faithful men and women of godly character in his church. And I honestly believe that we have the opportunity here at West Meadows to, to have a taste of that. Because there are so many things, good things that God is doing in us and among us. We, we have a healthy, loving, worshiping community. That has a sense of unity and support and, and, and a welcoming nature to all who come through our doors. And we have a desire to share the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ with our surrounding community. And folks, it is making a difference. It is making a difference. And while there are some people who are suspicious, not because they've done something wrong, but because they just don't understand. While there are some of those people, there are so many others who look at us as their community church. And we do have a good reputation in our community to the glory of God. But here's the danger of that. Here's the danger of being in a season of good things. The danger is that we begin to settle. We begin to get comfortable. We begin to go, you know, I'm in a good place. Let's just hit maintenance mode. But as the title of our series is Living with Eternity in Sight, if we are truly living with eternity in sight, then we need to continue to grow. There's no maintenance mode. There is a need to continue to grow in Jesus Christ and to reveal even greater expressions of his love, his grace, and his truth to the world around us. And so, so I, as I close, I leave you with these two questions to consider. Number one, how could these characteristics that Paul's talked about, that we've unpacked here today, how could these characteristics be better lived out, more fully lived out in, in my life? To consider, what would it look like for me to take that next step in faithfulness? That, that next expression of integrity, of purity of heart, of, of humbly loving other people. What would that look like to go to the next step in that? As we reflect the character of Christ through doing so. 
But as we also reflect upon our, our character, we can also then reflect upon our conduct and say, well, what, what could I do with that then? What, you know, what could I do? Where, where could I serve? What, what could I give that would not only strengthen the body, but would also further reveal Jesus to the world around us? You know what these are? These are what we referred to last week as those labors of love. Those labors we do in response to God's love first shown to us. You see, we don't serve, we, we don't give to impress ourselves or to please others. Remember, who's it all done for? It's done as a service unto the Lord, to bring honor and glory to him. And, and so when I talk about this and when I say, hey, where can you volunteer? I'm not asking you to volunteer for West Meadows. I'm asking you to serve Jesus. When we stand here and we say, will you continue to support the ministries of West Meadows as you so faithfully, and thank you so much. We are so richly, abundantly blessed. But as we ask you to continue financially supporting the ministries of the church, I'm not saying, Pastor Mark asked you to. No, I'm saying, will you support God's work through the church? When you teach a small group, when you teach a Sunday school class, we're not doing it to make ourselves feel important or to kind of puff ourselves up. We're doing it so that others may grow in God. When we help somebody through benevolence, whether it be through, through a, a conversation, through counseling, through paying utility bills, from rent, food, whatever it may be, we don't do it because it's a sense of duty. We do it because we love others because God first loved us. When we welcome all people, regardless of the differences that may exist between us and them, we don't welcome them because I told you to go welcome people or because Henry in the pre-service meeting told all the greeters, now we have to smile. It's not why we do it. We do it because when we see other people, we see an image bearer of Christ, image bearer of God, somebody who was loved enough that Jesus Christ died for them. We want to welcome them into communion so that they too can experience more of him as we seek to. You see, by the words of, of the Thessalonians and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may God show us where we have opportunities to, to better live and to better love in the family of God to his glory. May we love more deeply. May we encourage and spur others on more effectively. May we, may we walk shoulder to shoulder, enduring the highs and the lows of life more faithfully. And may we do all this to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Wow, this common sharing of faith, love, and hope that we have in Jesus Christ is what binds us together as a family. And it's also what unites us, all as Christians, as we turn our attention to the communion table as well. You know, all, all here who have accepted Jesus Christ, his work upon the cross in faith for the forgiveness of their sins are, are welcome to join us and to participate us in taking communion today. Why? Because you're a brother and a sister. Because you're in Christ, you're in the family of God with us, and so we welcome you to join us in taking communion if that is the true relationship you have with him. You know, folks, but that extends not just to who's here, it's to those who are online. And if you think about it, to churches around the world who today are doing the exact same thing. As we also can take pause right now and just acknowledge this kind of fraternal bond that exists between us and between them as well. And you ever pause sometimes and just think, man, we got a big family. Oh, isn't that awesome how big our family is? You know, as Paul ends this passage today in, in chapter 2, he, he kind of talks about these things and calls the the Thessalonica's attention to them. He starts by saying how thankful he is for those things. He's, he's thankful that they, like so many here, 
have heard the good news of Jesus Christ and received that into their lives. And they can see evidence of that at work within them. He draws their attention to these things that I just mentioned, that they're united not just within the kind of their own building, but with, with all the church. He, he even mentions that they're united going all the way back to like the original church in Jerusalem, like back in Judea. He says in verse 14, he says, For you, brothers and sisters, you have become imitators of God and of his church, like all the way back to Judea. Because all of us are in Jesus Christ, he says. And we therefore, if we think about that, we, we can share in the joys and in the sufferings of the church throughout the world. And, and this one invites us to take pause about that a little bit, because things are relatively good and peaceful and calm, not just here at West Meadows, but in Edmonton and in Canada, but not everybody enjoys that. And yet around the world, there are people who are still gathering in different contexts, with different amounts of freedom, with, with different levels of persecution. They, too, gather around the communion table today and still with thankfulness on their lips and joy in their heart. They say thank you to Jesus Christ. And so I want us to be mindful of the greater fraternity today as we take communion. It's not just what's happening in our context, but with our brothers and sisters around the world. And all of us gather with this certainty of hope that one day God will set all things right. That one day all knees will bend before Jesus Christ. And on that day, those who are opposed to the things of God, those who make troubles for the church, who, who chase them out, those who try to, to withhold the message of the truth of Jesus Christ that saves and redeems, they, they will stand before God and there is judgment for those things. But for those of us who have received Jesus' work upon that cross, those of us who gather around his table, those of us who live with eternity in sight, oh, what a joy to know that we will be with him forever. And so as we focus upon these things and ponder these things, I invite you to a moment of reflection as you prepare your hearts to join not just me and one another, but brothers and sisters around the world at the Lord's table this morning.